Follow along with us. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And at the end, the congregation will join us in unison, please. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the, in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to his ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And in unison we say, Praise, Praise be, be to, to God, Lord, the God of Israel. Today's reading will be found in Malachi 3rd, 1 through 4. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then subtle, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord. But who come endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refined fire or a laundry soap. He will sit as a refined and purify the silver. He'll purify the levators and refine them like gold and silver. Then the world, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings to the right, right and offering to Jonah and Jerusalem, who will acceptable the Lord as days gone by formal years. Our every reading in your pew Bibles, Philippians, um, Philippians chapter 1, 3 through um, 11. In your pew Bible, it's page 1084. Okay. I thank my Lord every time I remember you and all my, all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being, being co- covenant of this, that he who be, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since, all of you, since I have you in my heart and whenever I am in chains or defending a com- and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God, God's grace with me. Can you testify how long for all of you will with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this, my, in this my prayer, that you, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and, and depths of insight, so that you may be able to, to discern what 
is best and may be pure and, and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the Lord, to the glory and praise of the Lord. The gospel reading will be found in Luke 3rd, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the, Pont the Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Itera and Trancus, and Lysanthus Tetrarch of Albany. During the high priesthood of Annas and Cyphus, the word of God came to John of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to the to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can rise up in the children of Abraham. The axe is ready. I think we're good. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I came up to support through some of those uh, very challenging kinds of words. Uh, good luck to all of us reading that, uh, uh, Traconitus and Licinius and all that sort of thing. Uh, very foreign indeed. I prepared a homily today, and so you may well get out of church early. Aw. <laughs> then again... Uh, if I can shorten a sermon, I can certainly extend one. So we'll uh, see where we end up today. You can uh, cast your vote silently and later, I suppose. The title of today's sermon, or homily, is Making His Path Straight. And it comes directly from the readings and from uh, the season. It speaks of the work of John the Baptist and really any messenger. There's a very odd uh, phrase in Scripture, how beautiful are the feet of them who bear the good tidings or the gospel of good news. What an odd sort of phrase. It refers, of course, to times of battle when the king needed to hear word, being back at his city or castle, uh, palace, call it what you will, and being distanced, at least in some battles, from the action uh, for political and for safety reasons. But the king sometimes would want to hear what was happening in battle, how it went against the, against the enemies. And so when a runner was sent from the battle, the general would give word to the king, uh, the battle is won, or we're doing very well, or all is lost, whatever the, the news might be. And the phrase... How beautiful are the feet of them who bear the good news, referred to the runners who came with news of victory, news of something positive happening in the battle. Now you can imagine in a day of rocky paths and sandals what feet looked like on a runner. We're not talking about 
highways here, and we're certainly not talking Nike Air foot equipment. Uh, There were no such thing as steel toes in those days on boots or anything else. These were open sandals, and a runner would really be bloodied, presumably, by the end of a run from a battle scene to see a king. And the legs would have been scratched up by brambles and so forth. And so we have this very earthy sort of image of someone sacrificing to get with all haste the news to the king. And the king's words are, how beautiful are these tattered feet, these bleeding feet, because they bear good news. They bear good news. John the Baptist would have more than tattered feet. He would be beheaded. John the Baptist would endure political and religious criticisms, and he would deliver them in kind. John the Baptist would be the elder of Christ, but not by much. And yet he would declare himself unworthy to so much as lace or unlace the sandals of Christ. Nevertheless, he would go on to preach a baptism of repentance. He would baptize Christ in the Jordan River. As a prophet, he would uh, bless Christ, as it were, with a testimony of validation and authenticity in ministry. You see, the people, even the Pharisees, Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the rulers of the people, acknowledged in John something very special. Whether they liked him or disliked him, loved him, hated him, wanted him dead, or listened with great anticipation to what he had to say, they all knew he was somebody special. Remember John had been uh, born under the auspices of being charged with being raised under a Nazarene vow. That's a long way of saying he wasn't to cut his hair, he wasn't to partake of strong drink, he was to be raised in a very special kind of way, which Zechariah and Elizabeth did. They raised him in a special way. And we think of him as this odd sort of rough character because he lives in the wilderness. He doesn't live amongst civilization. He's not a city boy. And he's clad in something that sounds incredibly scratchy and uncomfortable. You just kind of hoped he had silk-lined drawers to go with his camel hair garment. It just sounds very uncomfortable. Doesn't it sound itchy? I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, I get these images of this thing I'm wearing, and it just doesn't feel very comfortable. And he eats locust bean or locusts and honey. Now, there are two kinds of locust, both of which are clean. There's the locust bean, which produces a carob-like fruit, and some who favor a vegetarian point of view think that he ate sweet things like locust bean and honey, and I have one in my office, actually, from Israel. Others think that he ate locusts, as in the desert plague of insects, And by the way, any insect that hopped and had hind legs higher than its abdomen, like a locust or a grasshopper or a cricket, was considered clean for eating and could be eaten. Now, I have seen Anthony Bourdain or whatever his name is on that crazy show where he eats all sorts of, uh, if I got the right guy, wild stuff. 
I have to tell you, I'm fairly adventuresome. I could not begin to eat half of what that man eats. It's just disgusting. And I don't know, I haven't gotten up my courage yet to eat a grasshopper or a locust or a cricket. Some of you may have had the courage to do that. I understand if dipped in chocolate, they're fairly good. Um, I would want to dip it, let it dry, dip it, let it dry, dip it, let it dry, dip it, let it dry. And uh, probably, you know, one-shot it myself. It's the chocolate coating that makes the pill go down so easily, right? But nevertheless, uh, they're clean to eat. And so you have John the Baptist with this strange diet and this strange outfit, living in a strange place, having been raised in a strange way, making straight the path of the Lord, proclaiming the good news. How beautiful are his feet. Because he's proclaiming the victory of God that is to come in the person of Jesus Christ. There's some salient features of the text we've read that connect today, and I want to try to do that for you without losing you too much as we go from uh, one piece to another exploring themes because virtually every text that has been read to you today, Luke 1, Luke 3, Malachi, and I think it was First Thessalonians, Philippians, thank you, Eric. Each one of these has a connector point. Each one of these has a connector point or two or three or four in terms of themes that we can explore today. But in this season of anticipation, as a season of looking forward to the Christ child who's come, we don't always spend much time thinking about John the Baptist and what it was that he was here to produce and what it was that he was here to do. So in addition to acknowledging Christ, calling him out, uh, declaring his unworthiness and inferiority compared to the Christ who was his, who technically, culturally, he was the superior of, having been the firstborn, and having pointed to him as the one, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, something very special happens in the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's a ministry that we partake in today because we are commissioned to carry forth good news. Are you with me so far? So one of the first themes that pops out um, is a very poetic one. And it has multiple layers of meaning in my view, and let's just spend a few minutes with that. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to read from something that we don't consider to be authoritative. It's not part of our canon. That is to say, it's not a part of our Bible or our scripture. Um, but nevertheless, it's been a sacred text that's endured for some time. And it's uh, it, it would be in an intertestamental period. It's called Baruch, and it's chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Listen to the poem or the, the prose here in Baruch. Take off the garment of your sorrow and affliction, O Jerusalem, and put on forever the beauty of the glory from God. Put on the robe of righteousness that comes from God. Put on your head the diadem of glory of the everlasting. For God will show your splendor everywhere under heaven. For God will give you evermore the name righteous peace, godly glory. Arise, O Jerusalem, stand upon the height, look toward the east and see your children gathered from the west and the east 
at the word of the Holy One, rejoicing that God has remembered them. For they went out from you on foot, led away by their enemies, the captivity. But God will bring them back to you, carried in glory as on a royal throne. For God has ordered that every high mountain and the everlasting hills be made low, and the valleys filled up to make level ground so that Israel may walk safely in the glory of God. The woods and every fragrant tree have shaded Israel at God's command, for they will lead Israel with joy in the light of his glory, with the mercy and righteousness that comes from him. Embedded in this text, some of the same themes that we've, we will hear and have heard in the other texts. But I wanted to just point out the mountains high and the valleys low. If you think about Zion and you think about Jerusalem where it's situated, the Kidron Valley is on one side. It's got valleys all around it. It's up in the mountains. Jerusalem is high country compared to where the Jordan River runs. And so there's this difficulty of going to Jerusalem and leaving Jerusalem. And when you've been taken far away, how do you get back home? And so there's a a literalism here, a poetry, that says we're going to just make all the rough places plain. We're going to make everything smooth. It's going to be an easy journey. It's going to be like a highway back to Jerusalem, back to the glory God had for Jerusalem, for Zion, for Israel. There's another sort of secondary thing going on here, I think. If you look at the destruction of the temples and the captivities that took place and the need to rebuild them, where the temple is situated in its most recent building was a mountaintop. And on that mountaintop, huge amounts of stone and giant-sized stones were brought in to make the rough places level. That temple mount was literally built And the rock upon which Abraham was supposed to have offered Isaac is where the building took place. And so the current temple mount in the city of Jerusalem is a level space where the glory of God could reside in a temple built to his honor and glory. And there was not a level place there. There were hills and valleys that had been made plain. And the glory of God was empowered or enabled to dwell once again among his people in that place. So there's this sort of very rich, uh, captive, brought back to freedom. Uh, diaspora, that the scattering of the Jews brought back to home in the passage that we just read and in some of the other things. So one of the themes that is happening and we, when we look at the good news, when we look at uh, making his paths straight, is a return to the homeland, so to speak. There is a place where God is at the center of things and his glory shows, where his rule is acknowledged and where his laws are kept and where there is peace. And this is Zion. This is Zion. And we can, we can understand this literally for the Jew Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, all of this, but we can also understand this in an anticipatory way as we think about the new Jerusalem to come, as we think about the reign of God made complete on earth. So this is one of the themes that we've got going in our passages 
Um, and I just, again, wanted to, to pull that from Baruch because it's so similar. The third theme that I think is running in this valleys and mountains things comes from the most famous of the Psalms. Yea, though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death, I will do what? Fear no evil. You see, when we have mountains and hills, we have places where evil can lurk, where, where bandits can hide. When we have valleys and mountains, we have the possibility of flash flooding coming down through the valleys when the rains come in the desert. Valleys can be treacherous places for travelers. We don't think of it so much that way anymore, but this is one of the themes in this particular passage running through. So in Luke, at the end of our reading in verse 79, we find to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There's that wonderful reference again to a leveling or to the shadows, to the dark places. And at the end of Luke 3, 1 to 6, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And what? All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. John the Baptist pointed it out. John the Baptist was engaged in making the way straight so that a return to Zion could take place, a homecoming, if you will, a place of peace and righteousness where the enemies of God and his people could not bother anyone. There are a couple of other themes running through our texts as well. One of them has to do with righteousness. When we make paths the way for our God, excuse me, when we make the path straight for our God, we're talking about acts of righteousness in many cases, justice, mercy. We don't often think of this when we think of anticipation. And indeed, the first coming was largely devoid of this as well, except in the ministry of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was preaching the coming Christ, he wasn't preaching necessarily a deliverance from Rome. He was preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins a baptism in which Christ participated, even though he was without sin. John the Baptist's message was much more spiritual than it was political in that sense. And so as John the Baptist preaches and Christ appears, he becomes a different kind of Savior, a different kind of Messiah than is anticipated. Yes, he can raise the dead. Yes, he can take a loaf and some fish and feed an army. Yes, he can heal the infirmed and the injured. Yes, he can restore sight to the blind. He is your dream commander because he can raise the dead. What army could possibly prevail against an army led by someone like that? Certainly, he would deliver Israel. But the li- the literal deliverance wasn't what Christ had come for after all. It was a spiritual one. This is why every time we read about this, it's framed in terms of righteousness, which really defined is right doing or 
an attention to the law, particularly justice and mercy. So I'm afraid today you can't escape it. I'm afraid today as we anticipate the coming of Christ anew, we must also engage the world in righteousness, in justice and mercy. This isn't, by the way, a righteousness that is predicated on what we choose not to do. I think we will be able to go if I take this theme until 12.15. It's not a righteousness about what we don't do. I don't watch television on Friday night. I don't eat this. I don't drink that. I don't go here. I don't go there. I don't use these words. There may be a kind of marker that we understand in those things. There may be health connected to some of those things. There may be uh, reputation or positive things connected with some of those things. But this isn't the righteousness referred to in Scripture. The type of righteousness referred to in Scripture is not a righteousness of what isn't done. It's a righteousness of what is. This is why it's possible for us to sin in doing nothing. I didn't do anything bad. Yeah, and you didn't do anything good. I didn't make the situation worse. No, but you didn't step in and make it better. We've all heard of bystander apathy. You all took Psychology 101. The studies starting out of this ancient story of a woman being stabbed in New York and screaming for 30 minutes and nobody doing anything about it. And psychologists saying, why is it that human beings hearing another human being screaming and dying and seeing that there's something going on wouldn't step in, wouldn't intervene, wouldn't call the authorities, each assuming that everybody else had called the authorities? Sin of omission. It isn't that anybody besides the attacker stabbed this woman. Nobody killed her but one, and yet everybody who heard killed her because nobody called. Nobody intervened. Nobody stepped up. Sometimes we're guilty by what we don't do in addition to what we engage. So we have, I'm sorry to say, I know it gets tiresome, but we have a social reality in justice and mercy. You see, the Old Testament was very concerned with the fatherless, the widow, and the alien. Why? Because these were largely people with no rights and no resources. They were concerned that not only the wealthy prevail in court, but that the poor be able to have their day. And our great country is predicated in many of its systems on exactly this. We want the poor to be able to have a trial, same as the rich. We fund that through our taxes. We want someone to be innocent until proven guilty, wealthy and poor alike. This is why law enforcement is differentiated from the court systems. We want people to be able to live in this country without starving to death, so we corporately pay for food stamps, for aid programs, for school lunches, for other things, so that the impoverished among us might not perish. 
We have thousands and thousands and thousands of charities in this country, which many of you give generously to, that provide in one way or another for an orphan child somewhere or for something that benefits the good. This is to our blessing and to our credit. I don't believe a conscientious Christian should complain about engaging these things or paying taxes to fund these things. You may have other convictions, and I respect that. But both of us need to agree that the Scripture calls us to an advocacy for the fatherless, for the widow, that is to say the orphan, the widow, and the alien. We need to be aware of justice, mercy, and the larger good as we live our lives in the context of the economies we battle and the things that we engage. So many of you do that beautifully and selfishly, unselfishly. So strike that, unselfishly. So I I, want to, yeah, I do this every sermon, and I don't know how the editors on these videos deal with all of this. I just hope whoever's watching can uh, laugh the same as the rest of you do. We want to be able to look our God in the face and say that we've engaged a path of righteousness that hasn't been narcissistic, that hasn't been so self-centered thinking about all the little things that we may have done or not done or thought or whatever. We want a righteousness of action, a righteousness that makes the rough places plain, that takes the mountains and brings them down a bit and takes the valleys and raises them up a bit, that makes a path for Zion for all of us to travel, that we might all come home to be with our God. This is an inescapable part of these passages. Justice, mercy, righteousness, they're embedded. Because you see, we don't realize heaven until we realize these things. If you think about that, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Will heaven be heaven for you? Let me just frame it for you. If in heaven there is socioeconomic distinction and you get to make it, but your street is paved in lead and my street is paved in gold, how's that going to make you feel? How about if your house is about a 100 square feet And my house is about 100,000 square feet. How's that going to make you feel? What if in heaven I have access to interplanetary travel, but you are restricted because you couldn't afford the ticket? You only get to ski on the lake of glass. Sorry. (laughs) Now, I'm being silly, I know, because we all envision heaven entirely differently from this. We all envision as a, heaven as a place of plenty where our Father has prepared for us joyously, equally. Sometimes when we differentiate, we talk about stars in the crown. I don't know if that's diamonds or what that is. But we say some might have more than others because of the souls they've won or influenced. What we also know from Scripture is that when we encounter the living God and the, the Christ who saved us, all of us fall on our faces and cast our crowns at his feet. So there will no longer be differentiation of who has what as they walk around in their tiaras. This isn't princess for a day program. This is heaven we're talking about. 
Any notion of heaven has to be based on enough for all, adequacy for everyone. By the way, do you realize that's the premise of church budget? You might want to take a look at the bulletin. We're running a bit short. And it isn't because there isn't enough amongst us. It's because not everybody's chosen to share. When everybody contributes what they can to church budget, there's plenty. We experience a kind of heaven. When there's a shortfall and only a few are contributing to budget, there's not enough. And it raises questions. And it challenges us to have enough to meet the needs of the community. You see, that isn't heaven. In heaven we envision plenty. In heaven we envision Something that leads us to a place of not worrying and not envying and not asking ourselves if we're doing more than another or if another has more than we have. All of that's changed. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Do you disagree? Are you just thinking about it for the first time? I don't know. Something to work on. I've had to wrestle with it myself. A third theme has to do with the word that goes forward. In Malachi, it says, See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And how does John do that? By preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke, it says, As you and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, referring again to John, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God drawn from on high, excuse me, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us, the light will dawn, we will see. In Luke 3, 1 to 6, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism for the repentance, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Not only do we have to pay attention to the positive aspects of what must be done, what we do, what we engage, but there is a turning from that which has grieved God and hurt others. There's a repentance of sin. And there's a newness of life engaged as we choose the baptism of cleansing of the removal of this sin. As we look forward to participating, wearing that robe of righteousness that Baruch referred to, Jesus talks about that, doesn't he? in his parables. Wonderful parable of the wedding feast in which the robe is provided, but the one not wearing it gets cast out. We don't present ourselves to Christ despite what we engage and what we ask forgiveness of as purified. He purifies us. And that's our last theme, isn't it? For he's like a refiner's fire. Who can stand when he appears? He's going to take this person with all of the impurities and apply the refiner's fire and out of which comes the dross is burnt and the gold is made pure. The dross is burnt and the silver is made pure. You don't want a heaven 
where the pavement in gold is going to start cracking because it's got dross in it. Okay, enough of that analogy, right? There's an offering in righteousness which comes back again to the two things that we've talked about. Forgiveness on the one hand and what we engage in justice and righteousness on the other looking forward. We prepare his ways as John the Baptist did for the first coming and for the second coming. And the message is one that is called the gospel of peace. This is my last point. What is our message to the world around us? What is it that you share? What is it that your life speaks to? What is your message to the world around you? What are the words that we choose to use? and How do we engage them? In other words, as we think about our life in community, as we think about our lives individually, The gospel has fundamentally not changed. Those who heard it in anticipation of the first coming of Christ received it, repenting of their sins, being baptized, engaging the social responsibilities that were theirs in the day to look out for those who couldn't look out for themselves. Engaging justice, truth, righteousness, not false testimony. Returning to the covenantal relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the inheritance promised. Going home to Zion. That was the gospel. And as we look at its New Testament iteration... It isn't much different. We preach that Christ is coming yet again. That he's coming in righteousness, this time in power. Our preparation is no different. Jesus said it much more plainly than the prophets. I was hungry and you fed me, naked and you clothed me, in prison and you visited me, sick and you took care of me. Come, you blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That's what Jesus said. That's the gospel in the New Testament. That he has come and provided, not only implanted in us a desire that we might be saved, but provided for that salvation through his blood, the Lamb who takes away the sin once for all. He invites us to wash our garments in his blood that they might be white, pure, purified. He provides the wedding garment of the lamb, so to speak. He speaks of a time and a place, a heaven in which suffering is ended and sin is no more, where the rough places have been made plain, where the mountains have been brought down and the valleys raised up, where all in Zion might rejoice and share in the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is the promise to come. So our words to one another need to be words of grace and hope and encouragement. Our words to one another need to be that of truth and honesty and building up. 
Our words to the world around us needs to be of reconciliation for God has loved the world and given His Son for it. The words to the world around us need to be an explanation of the beauty of the God who has reconciled the world to Himself in Jesus Christ and called us into relationship and fellowship with one another and with Him. This is the Gospel. So perhaps today you'll find time to sing to yourself how beautiful are the feet of them who bear the gospel of peace. And that you yourself will choose to be a gospel bearer, a good news bearer. Not one who sits off doing nothing. Not a gossiper or agitator one who brings good news, the gospel of peace and of the love of our God, Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come and who gives himself for us. May we prepare in this way in this season. And so, Lord, may you, the incarnate Son, indeed set us free in this glorious season of life and anticipation.